Please be seated. Please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 17. We are in the second half of this chapter. Now Paul has traveled south to Athens. He's traveling ahead of Timothy and Silas from Berea, more or less run out of Berea by the same rabble-rousers who were in Thessalonica and ran him out there. Um, The brethren at Berea thought it best to send Paul safely on his way, and so he took the long journey, probably by sea, along the coast south to Athens. Athens, a city that needs no introduction if you remember any of your world history growing up. Athens, uh, by the time of the apostles, was nowhere near its zenith any longer, but it was still a great and glorious city of earth with monuments everywhere to its bygone glory. Its golden age was centuries before, but still a city of great impact culturally, whether it be the architecture, the medicine that was studied there, athletics, poetry, artwork, law, education, and of course, philosophy. All these things were still sought after in Athens, and it was a center of learning still, even at this time frame. Rome conquered the city some 200 years before Paul gets there, um, but Rome let left most of it intact. Unlike other places Rome conquered, where it sent many of the artifacts back to Rome, uh, they left Athens, for the most part, renamed the pantheon of their, the Greek gods after Roman names, but essentially left it there as a bit of a monument to a, a great past, a great era, a great dynasty. Now, the symbolism of Athens as a place that Paul gains a large hearing is important it relates to any of the big cities we might have that opportunity in today. You think of cities like New York or Toronto or London or Rome or Shanghai or Paris, some city of considerable high culture, at least the world would think of it that way. Here is Paul given an audience uh, before the men of Mars Hill so that he can proclaim Christianity and Christ. For the first time, really, since Jesus was before Herod and Pontius Pilate of Rome, an advocate for Christianity gains an audience with the power of the world. And by God's providential hand, Paul was totally ready for this. Let's hear this account as I read it. This is God's inspired and inerrant word. Acts 17, starting at verse 16 and reading to the end of the chapter. Now, while Paul was waiting for them, Timothy and Silas, at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. 
For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each, of, each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again on this, about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and the woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, please give us clarity and understanding as we study your word this morning, this incredible address by the Apostle Paul here preserved for us by your spirit. As we observe this address, challenge us with the content of this timeless sermon, both as an example to us of how to interact with the arguments of our day and as a personal challenge to us about turning from idols in loving you alone. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit who gives us aid when we open your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 16. Have you ever felt like this in any place you've been? Paul was waiting for them at Athens. His spirit was provoked within him. He saw that the city was full of idols. I've had a few occasions, just a few I'll mention where this was really, really stark to me. Once when I was in college and I was working at a building downtown as a doorman, I would walk from, from my dorm to this building, which was several miles away. I'd walk Michigan Avenue, and it was right around the Christmas season, just before break. Most people had gone home already. I still had two shifts to do before I could go home. It was snowing out. It was cold. But there were hundreds of people just furiously up and down the sidewalks, shopping, going to wherever they were going, and I was walking to my spot, and I got to a bridge, one of the bridges that goes over the Chicago River, and I just stopped there for a while and just kind of took in the lights and the sights, and I had been there a few years already. I knew what the city was like, but something on that day just struck me, and there was a, a homeless person not far from where I was just trying to keep warm. Someone had given them their leftover uh, box from a restaurant, and they were trying to eat it with one hand to keep warm with the other, and I just looked around at everybody moving fast, horns beeping, people yelling out the windows at each other, even though it was cold, the windows rolled down, they didn't like what someone did on the street, cabs cutting off people, beeping at people before Uber. Uh, you have this 
this picture of humanity, this massive humanity, this big happening place. And I just felt an indescribable burden for the lostness of the people. Uh, I know I was lost before I was found, so I appreciate uh, what that striving was like. But to see the city just in such a movement, something about that day, I stood there for several minutes just asking God to save these people, save this city, give, give them Christ. A few years later, a similar I had a similar experience when I was in Rome with my father in 2006. Went there to visit Italy, did a bit of a tour through there. And when I got to the Vatican, I had the same feeling. A lot of baggage in my background thinking about that. But I remember walking into St. Peter's. And I've been there since, and it didn't impact me the same way. But the first time I went in and saw some of the artwork I had seen, even some replicas of it I'd seen at churches I'd grown up at, in, and here are hundreds of artifacts and relics and statues and grave sites right there in the building. And I remember being most gripped when, from a historical standpoint, I was always interested in Vatican II that was under the direction of Pope John XXIII. And there is the body of John XXIII preserved under glass and 50 people with a, a church service right near him inside St. Peter's in a, a, an elderly lady crying, holding the glass, a person dead 50 plus years, and praying to him. And I had the same sense of indescri indescribable burden for the misdirected focus and devotion and worship that was being poured out by these people. In this place, it's supposed to be pointing people to God. It was just overwhelmed with the creations of man. Then most recently, several years back, I remember the second time I went back to the Omaha Nation on the mission trip with that particular team. And we were in Macy, Nebraska, and we were doing a VBS. And to our, it was over a creek over the road, on the other side of where the prevention center, as the people remember, it was outside. And there was a powwow going on, which is a spiritual worship service of sorts for Native Americans. And they, were, and they were carrying it on for several days, and there was a sweat lodge happening as well where they invited people to come to be healed of various things by going in and basically sweating it out and using all sorts of substances and things. And, and this, this was right in the backdrop of us doing this Bible school, and there would be people that would say, on the one hand, they appreciate what we're saying and preaching, but they still believed in that native religion. And it just, it held them, and they kept going back for it as a superstition, even as an occult practice to some degree, to watch them pray to relatives or sing and chant in order to get their, their dead relatives to bless them in this life and all sorts of things. And I had this, the same feeling of indescribable burden for, for what was around. Uh, not because I knew more, just because for some reason God gave me grace to see my sin and lay hold of Christ by faith, and yet all these things were distracting them away from what they really needed to know about God and how to know the true and living God, not all these things that were figments of their imagination in ascribed deity. I think this is some of the feeling Paul must have had that day at Athens or that time in Athens. You remember he got sent away by his two good friends and he was there for maybe several weeks before they caught up to him. And Paul, not one to sit on his hands, starts to look around, starts to case the place to try to see what could he say, where could he engage. And while he's doing that, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. He was struck with a sen the sense of lostness in the people of Athens. Uh, rather than wait for Silas and Timothy to join, he started to speak and to teach and to preach. What did he preach? Simply, Christ and Christ crucified. 
more thoroughly, he preached the gospel of Christ and then how that gospel calls us to turn from our idols to the living God. That's the essence of the message he brings to the Areopagus. Now, look with me for a moment at verse 17, and you will see down to verse 18 that in his time before Timothy and Silas arrive, he addresses three different audiences, and it culminates with his address at Mars Hill. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons. Because of this weighty feeling he had about the lostness of everyone, he went to the synagogue like we know he does normally and started there where there would be some common connection with the Jews, no doubt using the Old Testament like he always did to explain Jesus and the resurrection and how it's fulfillment of what was forecasted in the Old Testament. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews. He starts there. And the devout persons, usually that means people who are non-Jews who had proselytized to Judaism and were genuinely interested in what was being taught by the Jewish scriptures. That's the first audience he took. Then it says in verse 17, and in the marketplace, the agora, in the marketplace, every day with those who happened to be there, anybody who would listen or engage, Paul would talk to them. And so he went to the marketplace and did this. So he talked to the religious ones and he talked to those who were the common folk, who were just passers-by in the marketplace, shopping. But then verse 18, we meet the third audience of Paul. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Now, the word for babbler here, most scholars agree, is a very derogatory term about him. It's one that's used about people that don't know much, they just talk. Um, This babbler, what is this babbler wishing to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities. Now, look what he's preaching. This is what's so critical to appreciating the impact of this address. Look what he's taking, people are taking notice of. He seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's the core message of Paul. We know that by now. We're sure of that by now. And that's what he's doing in Athens. That's what gains the philosopher's attention. They'd heard it all. I mean, they'd been philosophizing for 500 years in Athens, but now he came with something they had not heard. Not this nuance, that's for sure. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he spoke to the religious, he spoke to the common people, he spoke to the highly educated, the philosophers and the thinkers of Athens. And what was his core message? Jesus and the resurrection. So Paul was not there to debate philosophy with the Athenians, although he could have done so. Paul was was not there to rattle his intellectual saber with the Epicureans and the Stoics, although he would have held his own just fine. Paul was not there to compare his degrees with the philosophers, but he certainly had the credentials to do it. They say he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. You know, Paul's tenacious mission goal was to preach Jesus in the resurrection. He could have run with anybody in the day intellectually, but he stayed focused on the one thing that God had called him to preach. So many of these other things were not new under the sun, but the message of Christ is what separates Christianity, the truth, from everything else. In fact, when he was writing to the Corinthians, which is the next stop after Athens, a very similar cultured city, actually much bigger at the time, even more influential than Athens. When he writes back to the Corinthians, 
Listen to what he says, because I think it would apply to what we're observing here. He writes to the Corinthians, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He didn't have to come with a certain language of the day or have to go through their reasoning to get there. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He would not be taken off track by the philosophers, and that's what, you know, that's what philosophers do really well. Um, I've taken lots of philosophy, so I can say this. Philosophy, generally speaking, is a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that doesn't exist. And you could do that forever. In fact, they like to do that forever. That's really the end goal. Let's just keep talking. Uh, and, but Paul wasn't there just to talk. He was there to give them Christ. That's his goal. And that message has reverberated to 2019 as we sit looking at it again. And that's the timelessness of the message of the gospel. Paul was there to preach Christ, and the resurrection was the thing that made Christ unique and confirmed who Christ was. They could not ignore that if it was true. Socrates was dead. Plato was dead. Aristotle was dead. Epicurus, the founder of Epicurean philosophy, was dead. Zeno, the founder of Stoic philosophy, he was dead. But Paul was saying, Jesus is alive. This particular message about Christ is what caught the ears of the local philosophers, and as a result, they wanted to hear him more in the place where everybody listened. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. Now, the Areopagus literally means the hill of ours. In the Roman translation for this place is called Mars Hill. You've probably heard of the address of Paul at Mars Hill. That's what we are looking at here now. They took him to the Areopagus with a big audience. That's typically how it would work. May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, interestingly, I mentioned to you earlier that they called him a babbler. That is a slang term. They were making fun of Paul. He's a foreigner making fun of him. He's not high culture like us. This is subtle, but I want you to appreciate what Luke does here by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Luke makes a comment now in verse 21. They're mocking Paul for what he's saying. Luke, I'm not saying he's mocking them, but he's characterizing what they do. Verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. You know, so much of our generation is just, let's, let's have a conversation. Let's just talk. I want to have a conversation. We're having a great conversation. Good, but did anyone say anything? I mean, is a statement being made? Is truth being told? And Paul came there to give that truth. And his truth, in a lot of senses, was a form of a bottom line. And they'd like to just keep talking. Paul knows this. He knows who he's talking to. He knows how to craft the message he's going to give. The message is Christ. He's been giving it. That's why he got called to the place. But now he has to give a defense for what he's saying about Christ. That's what he does in the address. And the address is timeless in this way. Normally, when he would go to a synagogue, he would start with the Bible and explain to those who had some knowledge of the Bible how Jesus fulfills what the Old Testament predicts. That's still a great method for any of us to use if someone has some knowledge of what the Bible says. But in this case, he's speaking to people who are biblical illiterates. They don't know anything about what the Scripture says. And that's actually more and more of our culture, right? So he goes to something different as an approach. He starts with the creation that they all see. In fact, they're bowing down in front of some of it. 
He starts with the creation, roots it in the creator, says the creator is sovereign because he made it all. We're responsible to him. He's going to judge. You better find cover for that judgment. And then he goes to Christ. It's a, a very worthy method of sharing Christ, especially in our day and age. You always have to come to the biblical pronounce, uh, pronouncing of the gospel itself, Christ. But the way to get there often is through pointing people to creation, to the God who made it, and then following through. That's what we have in this sermon, and I want you to see that. Before we go further, though, the Epicureans and the Stoics, I don't know if you may remember Athens from your history, but maybe Epicurus and Zeno are not top of your list of philosophers that you remember. Basically, they represent two spectrums of the worldviews people had. Epicurus, or Epicurus, he was a deist, essentially. He believed there was a God, but we couldn't know that God. And since we can't know that God, we ought not worry about what he thinks of us because he probably thinks nothing. So therefore, just go do what you want to do. Yes, there may be a God, but he's not interested in us. He's left us to go. Life is just to pursue pleasure, and that's what he said. Whereas Zeno came along, the founder of Stoicism, and he had a more fearful view of things. Um, this idea that life was hard and rough, and there was a bit of a celebration about how you could put your mind to it and endure any kind of suffering that would come. And as far as God was concerned, they thought more like the force, you know, the Star Wars idea that pantheistic, that, that there's spirits in everything, the rocks as well as people, as animals, the mountains. It's all kind of divine in some way, and you try to tap into that consciousness, but it's very difficult, and you have to just really endure life. So there's the hedonist looking for pleasure, the one who's saying we've got to endure. One thinks God is completely disinterested. The other says God's everywhere, us including ourselves. And that's the spectrum of worldviews, which interestingly is kind of the spectrum of views you still get from people today when they describe how they think of spirituality. So with all this in mind, Paul is put before Mars Hill and all those gathered there in order to lay out his argument for why Christ should be believed upon. He starts with God as creator. Look at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Great way to, to grip their thinking first. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, that's the idols, the literal idols, stone and gold and ivory, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. In other words, the people were probably worried they didn't cover all the gods. I mean, there were statues of all sorts. 30,000 statues were ornaments in Athens at this time frame. Now, mind you, there were only 10,000 people living there. 30,000 idols, 10,000 people. I think you're pretty religious, Athens. In fact, you were so concerned that you might make one of the gods upset that you even made a monument to the unknown God. I mean, you're really trying to cover yourself here. You're scared of God, it seems. I mean, think of all that's conjured by what he starts to portray. Athens was the home of the Parthenon, where there was a huge gold and ivory statue of Athena that could be seen for miles. Images of Apollo everywhere. All the gods of Olympus had statues around the city beautiful creations of some of the greatest sculptors and artists to ever live on earth. But Paul sets them right, brings them back to God as the creator. Verse 22, I perceive that in every way you are very religious, for I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. Now verse 23, 
What therefore you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the one you're missing, that you seem to have completely missed, is the one. What you worship as unknown, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, the God, singular, who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Now, that is an introduction to an address in Athens. I mean, this is a big, this is a big start for Paul. Um, and he is ready for this moment by God's providence, and he sets the true and living God up as the creator. And everything flows from this, brothers and sisters. If he is the creator of all things, then he owns it all. It's all accountable to him. He can demand its homage. He can demand whatever he wants because he's God. That's what makes him God. He's not driven by human emotions or human situations. He is God. And that's the God they were missing. Your unknown statue, let me tell you who the known God is, the real God. And that's where he starts to preach. He starts to lay this out. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He is the creator of everything. Paul's appeal to creation is classic here, and it's just as usable with the friends you have. Uh, I have four friends who I maintain a text group with, childhood friends. We've known each other since kindergarten, some of us. Um, of the five of us, four of them would be Epicureans or Stoics. None are believers in Christ. They would, one grew up in the same church I did but doesn't believe. Um, they run that spectrum, and there's me. And so we have interesting discussions as time goes, and usually I let stuff go as they say certain things. They're kind of trying to poke and prod at me. Um, but recently, I'm pre- well, just this week, I'm preaching on this passage, thinking about the argument about God uh, about, from creation about God's existence and then how it drives us to ask the question, well, how can we be right with God? So my friend in Oregon sends me a picture of the southern coast of Oregon, and it's beautiful, um, beautiful outcroppings of rocks. He's on a kayak out there, beautiful seascape. My other friend sends me regular pictures of the sunset over the Niagara River and Niagara Falls. He lives right, he could see it from his house. And uh, my other friend lives in Colorado, he'll send pictures of the mountainscapes, and I send pictures of Kansas. We got the Flint Hills, I know. We got the Flint Hills, I know, I know. We got them. Send me a picture of an antelope, and I'll really like the, the Flint Hills. But anyways, we send these pictures, and this last time, I just felt led to open it up with them more. And I, they know where I stand on things, but I said, you know, guys, I'm going to use this picture in my next newsletter article for church, which I'm doing, um, because it's a beautiful picture and testimony, and I quoted one of the Psalms about God revealing himself through nature. And then uh, it started an interaction and, I, and I, instead of carrying it further, because it was difficult to find out, figure out who really wanted to talk more, I wrote the newsletter article, put it on my blog, and, uh, and then it's going to be in the newsletter article, but then I sent them that link and got some interaction with them. And two of them are just hyper-rational. They think they're super scientists. And I'm like, how could you answer for me when you see creation that, that there isn't a creator, that it's not designed? How do you, that's, that's the rational answer. If you pick up a watch, you know somebody made the watch. That's the rational thing. You don't just assume it, it just fell on the, onto, the, onto the table and there it is. Uh, you know, silence. There's not a lot. I mean, I'm sure we'll talk more when I see, each other, see them in person. I'm saying, though, this argument from creation is a strong one. And we see it here in Paul as he begins with, you've been created. All the stuff you've seen has been created by God. In fact, later when Paul was writing to the Christian church that existed in Rome, another city that would struggle with the same kind of thing, Listen to what he says, and it really connects here. In Romans chapter 1, Paul writes, For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely 
His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That's what we would call general revelation. It's just the general thing that you can gather by just looking around and seeing a leaf or seeing an ant or seeing a mountain or the stars. General revelation of God. That's what he's writing about in Romans. In the things that have been made, we could perceive God. So they are without excuse. Because this is the truth, we know there's a God and he's a creator and therefore we are accountable to him. Then he goes on to say to the Romans, this is kind of how it falls out. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. I mean, this is Athens. This is America. And exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to their lusts, the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. And then verse 25 of Romans 1. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, they didn't acknowledge the special revelation that was given through the coming of Christ that would help them to know the God who created. General revelation tells us there is a God, but we need a special word from God, Jesus, so that we could be right with God, to be related with God. Next in his address, look what he does. He goes from God as the creator to now God is also the one who, by the way, is personal. Sorry, Epicureans, you're wrong about this. There is a God, and he is there. He is personal. Paul declares God as sustainer. Verse 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Everything. It, it, that's, that's, he keeps giving then. If he's giving him breath, that means he's got to be with us because we're breathing in and out, in and out. He gives us breath. doesn't just leave us to go. In everything. Paul is showing God to be personal. He is interactive with humanity. The Epicureans thought that God was detached and disinterested. The Stoics thought God was more a force that existed in all material things. Paul says both are wrong. He gives himself to all mankind. He gives life and breath and everything. Then look at verse 26. He, he doesn't just create, he maintains and he sustains. And he made everything from one man, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place. That is not a detached God. That is an interactive, intentional, focused, personal God. This biblical view of God was certainly new to the Greeks. I don't know what they had heard from the synagogues because there would have been some of this idea for sure taught by the Jews, but they were unto themselves. Paul also notes something about how God created man in relationship to himself. Look at this, verse 27. That they should seek God. So he created mankind to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. So all the striving that they were doing in philosophy was part of the evidence of them being God's offspring, as the term is used later, in the image of God, they asked questions about God. Now, they weren't finding the answer with just general revelation. They had to have this special revelation, but there's something that is true about man, mankind, that makes us strive after knowing God. Augustine famously said, you have made me for yourself, O Lord, 
and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Uh, more thoroughly, Blaise Pascal said it this way, man tries in vain to fill, with every, to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help, since this infinite abyss can be filled only with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. Something about mankind that has this in their heart to strive after. In fact, the writer of Ecclesiastes says it's just this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. We know something's more. Something comes after this. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Man on his own knows there's more, knows there's God out there, but doesn't know how to know him without God specially reaching out to show him. Paul says that God is not far from us. The Epicureans are corrected, as are the Stoics. God is real. God has created everything. God cares about humanity. God is there. Verse 28, he quotes from one of their own authors. Think about this. A foreigner comes in who you don't really know. You call him a babbler. You kind of badmouth him. And now he's quoting your own writers. For in him we live and move and have our being. And Paul's applying this to the true God, of course, using their language with what he is now developed as the true picture of God. Look what it says also. He even lets them know, in case they didn't know who he was quoting here, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. What a beautiful picture for us. There are ways to tie in to the way the culture sometimes stumbles across some truth. And we can take that truth and explain how it fits into God's truth. And that's really what we have Paul doing. And he says it. We are indeed his offspring. Now, they didn't mean by offspring children in the way that we are adopted through faith in Christ. No, this is more about we're products of God. We come from him. We are his in that respect. This Greek writer, Eridus, would have been known, wrote several hundred years before, and he's taking these quotes and using them to show them the true and living God that God is personal. In him we live and move and have our being. This is not a God who is disinterested. He sustains. Now, he moves to the conclusion of his address. Look with me at verse 26. You see how he brings a culminating view of God. If God is the creator, he is upholding all things. He then also is the sovereign one who could demand righteousness and judgment if it doesn't come. He has the right to do that. He can make the rules. Verse 26, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He set all this up. This life you live when the sun goes up and the sun goes down, he set it up. He is the sovereign one. He is, oh, Father, you are sovereign. That's who he is. Uh, this is the, the, the one who cares, the one who is there, who is interpersonal, who is intentional, and he owns it all and you are accountable to him. That just goes without saying. If he's the sovereign one, we owe him our allegiance. He shows God to be the ultimate authority is. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Quit limiting God to these small things we create. In fact, by limiting God to these things we create, we're, we're in effect being God over them. That's what we'll create our God's. Who's God then? Verse 30, he warns them that with this address comes accountability. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. 
with the coming of Christ comes an opening of the revelation of God, the special revelation of God that now will be broadcast so that people can know God personally. The times are over of this ignorance. Now it's come to you, and here he is by God's sovereign appointment to command all people everywhere to repent. And here's the climactic conclusion, verse 30, down to verse 34 really, but if you look at verse 30, commanding everyone to repent because why? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Because he can, he's God, he can do it. By a man whom he has appointed. Now the turn to Jesus. Now here's the way you can know God. He's fixed a time when judgment will come for our unrighteousness. So turn from your idols. There's one who's coming to issue that judgment, and guess who he is? And of this, verse 31, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him. Raising who? The one who will bring judgment. By raising him from the dead. So the ha-ha, laugh, laugh about the resurrection they're talking about, that resurrected one is not only the Savior, he is also God the judge. And he's coming, and God can do this because he's God, and beware of it. So repent, turn from these idols, and turn to Christ, the Christ he'd been preaching that got him to Mars Hill to make his defense. That's what we see in a masterful way happen. Paul had been preaching Christ and him crucified, and we need Christ because we are accountable to a holy, sovereign God. The judgment will come. We must have safety in Christ when that judgment falls. And that's the warning he gives. What's the response to the sermon? Typical, I would say. Typical for Paul. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Now that could just mean let's just talk endlessly some more. So Paul went out from their midst. He had proclaimed the word faithfully as he was called to do. Verse 34, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, which, by the way, later the Greek church really elevated this figure. We don't know that much about him, made him a saint, and he's got some statues, which, interesting, isn't it, after all this? But here's Dionysius, um, one who was a philosopher himself, a, a teacher, and he comes to faith in Christ through this address, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Not a whole lot of converts right at that moment. But this address reverberates through history. It'll give common folk like us a chance to use a model of sharing Christ with people that we know. And it's done this countless times over history. The gospel, it calls us to turn from our idols to the living God. Not only does it give us a model for how to share Christ, it challenges us, doesn't it? How are we guilty of giving devotion to inanimate things or activities, stuff that'll fade, things that seek to rob God's glory, not elevate it. The gospel calls us to turn from our idols to the living God and to give he and his son the glory due their name. I wonder if Paul were to stand in Overland Park, Kansas, or Johnson County, or the greater Kansas City area, we, all, we come from all sorts of places in this region, what might strike Paul's spirit? What do you think? If, if Paul was there, be honest. I'll try to cover everyone so don't, no one thinks that I'm picking on just them. Would he see every one of us on our phones? Would that be the first thing he sees? I mean, just, boy, what are they so into that their heads are down all the time? Maybe all the activities at the soccer fields and at the baseball diamonds or in the volleyball courts, especially like on Sunday. It's amazing. We're with everybody. But man, there are a lot of people at Shields. Maybe all the activity in the shopping centers. Boy, people find something very interesting and important here. 
Maybe the big houses we have, the cars we drive, whatever it may be. Maybe we would read something like this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at town center in Leewood, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Let's pray. Lord, we are tempted to look back upon these idol-worshiping ancient Greeks with judgment about their foolish devotion and perhaps miss out on the challenge to us today. Lord, expose the idols that we hold up and give our devotion to. Lord, also let us recognize your sovereignty afresh. Let us recognize your right over our lives and our souls. Lord, let us once again cherish Christ who has represented us on the cross and through his resurrection so that we might have acceptance with you as your children, adopted children. We are not only your offspring in that we are your creation. We, through Christ, are your beloved children. Please receive the glory due your name. I pray this through Christ. Amen.